2: families, you know, well, people that wanted to wish me well and what I meant to them, like, you know. So,
3: I guess, like, I'm really accepting that it really is. Yeah.
2: This is the date of the 21st to the 6th, 2018. I, I retired in May 2018, you know and it says, Dear Pat Sorry I have not contacted you sooner but I am not as good as putting pen to paper as I used to be Like everything else, I kept putting it on the long finger I would like to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being there in the true sense of the word through all of our troubles and grief We shall never forget your professional help and the way you looked after us well beyond the call of duty. You always seemed to call to see us when I was at my most distressed and with your calm and sincere way always helped to explain things and put our minds at rest as much as you could. We learned a lot about human nature at that time as we found out how much goodness and sheer humanity existed in the Garda Force.
1: Pat retired as a detective over three years ago. He took it early though, still in his 50s. His latter years in the job were checkered with disappointments and frustrations within the Guardi and the hierarchy that governed it. Truth be told, it's probably not the way he saw himself leaving. When working close to victims' loved ones, you are dealing with families at their most vulnerable. In ways, Pat's work will always be deeply entwined in those families' stories. That letter, Rose's letter, was one of many he received from victims throughout the years. Pat is exactly as Paul described him, professional, by the book and straight to the point, He often comes across as extremely clinical in his description of crimes and acts he witnessed throughout his career. Not necessarily unemotive, but unable to detach himself from the emotion surrounding these murders. With the Callaly family though, things were different. This meant more to him. It consumed him entirely. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by The Irish Sun, I mean Doyle. What happens in a case when a whole country is convinced of the killer? It's not as easy as you think. In episode three, Pat makes ground on Joe. But as always, there's many twists and turns to come before Pat Murray would finally have his day.
2: Well, the EPP, as you know, are an independent people who make decisions on whether someone should face criminal charges or not, and they evaluate the file that we prepare and send in. And they are very, very skilled and professional officers. They are. And I've dealt with them for years. And I'm sure the best sigh of relief they ever had was when I retired,
3: like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) They won't charge anyone in this state, really, unless They're fairly convinced they're going to get a conviction, you know, or they have a very good case. So it's a fairly high level of evidence required. You might think that things like Joe's affair, his bizarre tour of the house,
1: his dreams about killing Rachel, and Jackie Connor's confession about the state of their relationship, that these things might be enough to get O'Reilly in front of a jury. But in reality, a lot of that evidence is extremely circumstantial and bordered on unadmissible. For the case to go to trial, Pat would have to submit enough evidence to the DPP who would decide whether or not there was enough there to charge Joe for Rachel's murder. Right now, he was still a long way off. At around 1.45pm on October 4th, Joe arrived back to the house after Rose discovered Rachel's body. He moved a box which lay beside her, and by doing so, potentially contaminated the murder scene. This was something he was keen to let Pat and his team know on first introduction outside the bungalow
2: yeah joe was a clear suspect we had blood on the inside of his left shoe between the sole and his laces very small and they were rachel's now we were able to determine or we believed we were able to determine that he couldn't have got those when he moved this particular box from rachel's head when he went down to the scene and uh, it was sort of a bone of contention between uh, to the forensic lab and
1: ourselves Rose and Jackie Connor were both in the room at the time when the box was moved. They both stated in a witness statement that Joe's feet were positioned close together in a way that would have prevented any blood from the box dripping onto the inside left of his shoe.
2: So we believed that he had got those splashes at a time when he was murdering Rachel. And I thought I had him. I thought I had him now. I says, I have you but the forensic lab wouldn't stand over the initial analysis that they told us that these drops of blood came from a height down. They said it could have happened when he moved the box.
1: Joe's alibi for the morning of the murder was based around him being with Derek Warney, his friend and co-worker from Viacom. When first questioned, he'd stated he'd arrived at the Viacom office that morning at 7.15am, after a gym session with Quirney. Then, the two men drove out to Broadstone Bus Depot in Fibsborough to conduct some business separately at 9am. According to his statement, Joe left the depot two hours later and reached Viacom again at midday. After conducting mass interviews on site, Pat was able to conclude that nobody stationed in Broadstone that day saw or spoke to Joe. The CCTV that covered the yard was out of service, which was a setback for Pat. Internal cameras that were working caught sight of Derek Quarney at 9.26am, but there was no sight of Joe in this period. Derek Quarney's assertion of that day did seem to roughly corroborate with Joe's. He told Pat he thought he saw him in the depot at a time when the murder would have been taking place, and the pair had two phone calls at 8.55 and 9.25. Pat took a journey out to Viacom to interview some of Joe and Derek's co-workers. While he was there, he spoke to an administrative assistant who knew the two men mutually. She told Pat she recalled Joe walking into the office at around 12.15 that day, and his rough appearance caught her eye. His eyes were bloodshot and puffy, as if he'd been crying. And she said to him, Jesus Joe, you look like shit. She didn't quite catch what he mumbled back. Having only originally given a statement, Pat thought it was time to give Derek Quarney a formal interview and really grill down his account of that day. This time around, Quarney was a wreck, visibly nervous and becoming more unsure of himself and his statements. Over the course of a few weeks, Pat brought him in for five interviews in total, picking away at his statement and his movements during that day, During one interview, he was so overwhelmed he jumped from his seat and vomited into a dustbin in the corner of the room. Quarney was someone who had never previously had any interactions with the guards, never mind a murder case. He seemed like a pretty normal guy, but someone who might just be in a little over their head. On his fifth and final interview, Pat relayed his account of that day over and over, and Quarney opened up to Pat He told him that in reality, he couldn't have actually witnessed Joe and Broadstone that day at all. That he had just gotten confused. Joe's main alibi had now fallen apart. Pat felt this could be a major turning point in the case. With Quirney's statement now out of the way, Pat turned his attention to a much more relatable witness of that day one that was incapable of lying in court. That was Joe's mobile phone. The technicians from O2, who were tasked with looking at the pinging data from Joe's texts and calls, had come back with their analysis.
2: We had a breakdown of where his phone was used and he received calls and text, and we had him coming from, let's say, Bluebell Out, Richardstown Mast, which is only five miles from his house, caught him on the way out. Uh there was a phone call, I think, from Derek Querny, and I caught him at that mast. And then the next call he got or text, it went through Murphy's quarry, which is only 300 yards from his house. So we could show that like he was making his way out and then he made his way back. And then he had the audacity, I suppose. And well, this is what cunning people think they're doing. He texts Rachel. After murdering her, and on his way back near Blake's Cross, he texts her saying, How are you, Rachel? How are things? Uh, Hope the kids slept well. Granny, see you know, You know, this type of shite, big X, and all that type of stuff.
1: The months trickled on, and the case carried over into 2005, where Pat and his team were busy behind the scenes, following up on any leads that might help in bringing justice to the Cowleys. Joe was arrested for further questioning, but the DPP were still reluctant to charge him with the murder, frustrating Pat and the team. Things were moving in the right direction, though. Pat felt it was only a matter of time before Joe would end up in front of a jury. Circumstantially, it was all coming together.
2: We arrested Joe a second time and we questioned him in respect of the emails that we had acquired from his work laptop.
1: The emails didn't paint a pretty picture for what life must have been like for Rachel.
2: He told me, other oh, the marriage was rocky, but everything is fine now. And here he is slating his wife, like, you know, calling her dirty names and me and Rachel in marriage equals over, like that type of, and way worse. In some emails, he
1: demeans Rachel for fun, calling her his lazy c- of a wife, and tells Nikki. My greatest fear is becoming Mr. Weekend Custody, when I leave Rachel for you. Here is Rose Callaghanie speaking to Clareburn Live in 2019.
4: And not only did he murder her, but he tried to take her character. When we saw all those awful emails in the trial, and we realised what she had been going through for God knows how long before, he really must
2: have had her mind destroyed. Degrading his own wife, the mother of his sons, like, it was really poor. And it showed that he hated her, like, really hated her.
3: all Joe did was, like, he swatted a fly that day that was annoying and it was buzzing around his head and he just swatted it and then he got up the next day and he just went out and lived his life.
1: Stephen Breen is crime editor with The Irish
0: Sun. At that time he had um, total um, hatred for his wife. He'd found someone else so he had and he wanted to build a future with Nikki Pelly. So how could he build that future if he had Rachel in his life? But you have to ask the question, why didn't he just go and get a divorce? Why didn't they just separate? But he wanted to take it to a different level. He wanted Rachel completely gone from his life, and also from the lives of their children as well. So, to do that and to achieve that objective, the only way he could do it in his warped mind was to kill her. The most important thing for him wasn't his children, wasn't his family, wasn't Rachel's family. It was maintaining this relationship with Nikki Pelly.
2: It was only on the second time, that when he arrested Nikki that she confessed that she was in love with Joe and that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with Joe and she wants to get married to Joe and Joe was the bee's knees and that was it.
3: Whether you split up with your wife or whatever, it doesn't matter, you still only have one mother. And his thing was just let's get rid of that one and maybe let's bring this one in and everything will be cool, you know. And that's just not the way of the world, you know. So it wasn't just a relationship, it was
2: a it was a full on blast job and that was it, you know. The motive at the end of the day was Joe wanted to have control of his children and he didn't want Rachel to have
3: the children. There's no humanity there. Like this woman, my sister gave birth to his two beautiful kids. And that alone, like that alone. Like the day he killed Rachel, he he, he took the mother of his two kids away from them.
1: As Pat kept digging, for more information about Rachel's life with Joe he came across something that angered him. There was an instance where Rachel had been reported to social services for mistreating her children. It had devastated her at the time, and she never knew where it came from.
2: And herself and Joe had to parade themselves in front of the social services. When we dug into it, we discovered the anonymous source was Joe's mother, which was... (sighs) Joe was getting his mother to ring in about Rachel how low can you get? Like, you know, (laughs) I think it's bizarre stuff, really.
1: Pat had no doubt in his mind Rachel was a fantastic mother. He'd gotten to know her during the investigation more than he could ever have imagined. She did her best for her kids and kept the show on the road at home. While Joe was off, setting up traps for her, and degrading her to his mistress all the time.
2: And then to come along and to slate her and tell the social services she was a bad mother, like, you know, it just doesn't sit right. It's just wrong. It's just wrong.
4: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P. Why did he have so much hatred for his wife? It's because she was in the way of him having an affair. At the time, he wanted a different life. He didn't want her in his life anymore. And because of the arrogance there, he thought he could get away with it. But did he really need to use that level of violence against a completely defenceless person in the confines of her own home where she should have felt protected and should have been safe? On March 4th, 2006, a year and a
1: half after Rachel's murder, Joe was brought back into the police station for questioning. Pat wanted to talk to him about the emails they'd discovered. With so much evidence stacked against Joe, Pat's hope was for a confession, to put an end to the cat and mouse chase that had consumed him for months on end. Joe wasn't going to speak, though. By this stage he had stopped cooperating with the guards, and no comment was as much as they'd get out of him. With the circumstantial evidence gathered so far, the DPP still wasn't giving Pat what he wanted in relation to the charge.
2: They were saying you're falling short, and even though you put the emails and all this stuff, and you other, need no comment, no comment, like, you know, there's no... It wasn't groundbreaking, like, for a charge and, and they said, no, you have to let him out and that was it and you have to do what the DBP says.
1: A case like Rachel's is always full of highs and lows, particularly for someone as invested in it as Pat was. With no charge in sight, Joe O'Reilly had to be let out, a free man once again. It was a day that Pat still remembers with contempt
2: was a huge crowd gathered outside like very oh, anti-Joe O'Reilly crowd and they were shouting abuse and all this that and the other and he was there with his brother and before he left the station he turned around to me, put his thumb up and he said I see you Pat like you know as if to say F you, you can't get me. And I remember saying to me, myself so, you'll you rue that now other." Like the cocky head of him and off he went and out into the crowd not a bother on him. And down and away, he went with his brother in the car and that was it. At this
1: stage, the pressure was beginning to mount on Joe. Not that he would have shown it publicly. But Pat was close. And both men knew it.
2: Investigations are fluid and they're always moving and there's always aspects to it. Stuff you generate yourself to, to, to... Move it on, and then there's things people say and stuff and and I guess it was Nikki Petty who said after her first arrest she told a friend of hers, says it's, it's very hard to keep lying to the guards.
1: Nikki's friend, or Miss D as she would become to known, didn't feel right about what had been confessed to her. Knowing it was important information, she made a statement to the Guardi about it. On top of that, she also divulged more information about Joe and Nikki's conversations.
2: She also told me that uh, Joe had said to her that he'd kill Rachel if he got away with it. And then when we arrested um, Nikki Pelley a second time, because we believed she was withholding information, she was spoken to and she did say, yeah, Joe told me that he'd kill Rachel if he got away with it. She said he only said it in passing, she didn't think anything. He didn't think he would do any such thing like that or anything of that nature and believe that he didn't do it. like you know. But it was said. So she said she would give evidence of that.
1: In the beginning of October 2006, two years since Rachel's murder, Pat went back to the DPP with this extra bit of information, hoping this might finally be enough to see O'Reilly in a courtroom. As much as he hoped, he couldn't be sure if it would be. He'd been here so many times before. All he could do was file in the statement and hope for the best.
2: And they believed we had enough at that stage. Like it was the straw that broke the camel's back, let's say, for the purpose of a charge.
1: Pat was delighted. After all this time, the countless hours of work, and all the frustrations and disappointments, he could finally go and look Joe O'Reilly in the eye to tell him he was being charged with the murder of his wife. Next time on The Making of a Detective...
2: I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Joe, I'm now arresting you for the murder of Rachel O'Reilly."
3: Jays the courtroom was packed. Oh my God, it was packed.
1: The Making of a Detective, The Cases of Pat Mary was brought to you by The Irish Sun. This series is hosted and produced by me, Ian Doyle. For more information on the life and career of Pat Murray, check out his 2019 book, The Making of a Detective by Penguin Books.